In America, they're called row houses, but across the pond in England, a row of wall-sharing homes is called a terraced house. Regardless of what you call them, it's part of what separates cities like London, New York, Boston, and Amsterdam from places like Paris and Minneapolis. I'm George Boldarki, and this is Cityscape. In his new book, The North Atlantic Cities, author, planner, and historian Charles Duff explores row house cities from 1600 to now. He's our guest on this week's Cityscape. Charlie, thank you so much for taking the time to talk with me. Great pleasure. Good to be here. So the book is The North Atlantic Cities. First of all, how did you come up with that name, The North Atlantic Cities? Well, I noticed that there are cities in both Europe and the and America that have row houses. That's the way they're built. And they're 3,000 miles away from each other. And the row house cities of Europe are very different from the cities of inland Europe, which are cities of apartment houses. And they're very different from the cities of inland North America, which are suburbs around skyscrapers. So I said, well, I can't call them the row house cities because most people don't call them row houses. New Yorkers call them brownstones. Londoners call them terraced houses. What do they have in common? They have the North Atlantic Ocean in common. That's the big trade route, the big migration route that built the cities on the two sides. Well, the fact that they're not called the same thing all over the place, then what is it that makes a row house a row house? Oh, gee, let's start with being a house and then let's put it into a row. Um, it's, uh, <laughs> you know, there are plenty of houses that are not in rows, and then there are plenty of buildings in rows that are not houses. Um, think about apartment houses throughout New York, Grand Concourse, Park Avenue. Uh, they're, they, they're in rows, but they're not houses. And then go to the suburbs and you'll see houses, but they're not in rows. Uh, row houses start as single family houses, uh, but they're physically connected to each other. Uh, many have been converted to apartments, but the basic type starts as a single family house, often with a store or a workshop on the ground floor in the early days. What inspired your interest in the row house? I work in Baltimore. Baltimore is a city of row houses and Baltimore needs a lot of work. Uh, my, I run a nonprofit organization that tries to help the people of Baltimore to make their neighborhoods strong and desirable. Our neighborhoods are row house neighborhoods. And when I want to read what's the best thinking on row house neighborhoods, it doesn't come from the United States because America doesn't have a lot of row house cities. Most of the best work in row house neighborhoods is being done in Holland and some to some extent in, in the UK, but there's no international dialogue. We don't realize that we have a lot in common with them. They don't realize that they have a lot in common with us. And we really don't have much in common with Los Angeles or Houston. So um, I wanted to get a discussion going uh, also because planners have generally malpracticed on row house cities for the last hundred years. Uh, the car was catastrophic to row house cities and high-rise public housing was no fun and the British did a lot more of that than we did and they've torn most of it down and as we have outside New York. So I think if you want to if you want to know what to do uh, with a row house city you have to start from saying okay what kind of city is this um, and what works and what doesn't and by now we've got a pretty big book of things that work and things that don't. And, and I 
wrote my book so that people would start to say, oh, really? Okay. A book that takes us all the way back to the 1600s in Holland, right? Is that where the row house started? The Dutch invented the row house. And the first red brick row houses in the world were built in Amsterdam in 1622. Uh, people were so excited about it that they said, gee, let's go over to the Hudson River and the East River and see if we can start another row house city. And they did. <laughs> So they brought it to New York. Yep, old or New Amsterdam. Now, looking back at the history, what fascinates you most about how the Row House evolved back in the 1600s to where we are today? What fascinates me the most is the way ordinary people and architects worked together to build houses and entire neighborhoods and entire cities. Um, most of the important decisions in urban development are made by people with no architectural training. They're made by landowners or developers or by you and me when we decide we're going to buy this house or rent that apartment, but we're not going to buy this, that house or rent that apartment. Um, and the, the beauty of, of the birth of our cities is that architects collaborated with the people and the people collaborated with architects. And you came up with a basic building type that could be built by untrained builders, by builders without architectural training, but it still had a lot of good architectural thought in it. It had good, a lot of good design thought in it. And the result was a common practice, just an ordinary way of building uh, that looked good, was decent to live in, uh, and could meet an awful lot of different kinds of needs. Is the row house considered classical architecture? It can be. You can do row houses in any style you want. In the 1600s and the 1700s, people were in love with ancient Rome and they wanted their row houses to look classical. And you get beautiful places like Bath in England. Um, and you look at the north side of Washington Square in Greenwich Village. Those straight cornices across the top are doing their best to look classical. But then in the 19th century, people fell in love with the Middle Ages and you get row houses that look medieval. And by 1900, people are in love with modern Paris. And if you go to the Upper East Side, you'll find lots of very expensive row houses that look like Paris. Paris doesn't have any row houses, but New York has plenty of row houses that look the way Parisian row houses would look if Paris had row houses. And now you get modern row houses, capital M modern row houses. Uh, a lot of them being built in Seattle, a lot in Philadelphia. Row houses are interesting, I guess, because they can be the size of a home that could be on its own plot, separate from all other homes. You can still get the room in a row house. And if you're looking for ways uh, that people can live with a low carbon footprint um, and they don't want to live in very small apartments, uh, the row house is ready made for you. It actually works. It's a wonderful alternative to American suburban sprawl. You've got a house that's big enough to live in and you can get sunshine on a sunny day and you can raise kids in it, but it has, you know, you have enough density to support retail within walking distance. You have enough dis density to support mass transit. Um, New York is the densest city in the North Atlantic world uh, and it has a good transit system, but you don't need to be as dense as New York to have a good transit system. Uh, London is about as dense as Philadelphia, and it has a better transit system than New York. And Boston is, is less dense than Minneapolis. 
and has a better transit system than New York for a city of its size. So uh, you, don't, you don't need to have New York density to have a low carbon footprint. If you had to fill in the blank here, I'm curious to see how you will fill it in. If it weren't for row house cities, we wouldn't have blank today. The row house cities wound up or have wound up throughout their history being the most creative urban environments in the world. Um, it, it was the people of row house cities who invented public transportation. They invented public parks. Uh, they invented downtown. They invented the central business district. Um, they invented residential neighborhoods. That's the other half. If everybody's working downtown, then everybody can live somewhere else. And then they went ahead, and you New Yorkers did this, invented Midtown. And Midtown really is the model for a successful city center now, Midtown Manhattan, uh, because it, it is a very high density mix of a very wide range of uses. Uh, magnificent place. Uh, and the model for a city center. So yeah, we've been immensely creative. Apart from that, if you're keeping score, we invented sewage disposal. That's pretty important. Uh, anesthesia, that's pretty important. Um, and uh, soccer football, we invented soccer football. That's a, a gift of the North Atlantic cities to the rest of the world. Where was that invented, soccer football? Uh, somewhere in England. Different places claim to have invented it. I don't think Cooperstown, New York claims to have invented it, but different places in England claim to have invented it. I want to talk more about the downtown because you do focus a lot of time on the downtown in this book. And today, downtowns are not what they used to be. They were once a place where lots of people worked, but no one lived. Today, lots of people live in downtowns. How did downtowns develop? Downtowns developed because of two things. In Europe, the Industrial Revolution, mainly in England, which produced an enormous amount of stuff that had to be wholesaled and retailed and stored and shipped. And then on the American side, as Americans plowed under most of North America, we produced enormous agricultural surpluses, which all had to be shipped and wholesaled and retailed and warehoused. And so you, you got across the Atlantic an unprecedented amount of stuff moving backwards and forwards. Food, timber, plows, axes, all this stuff. And it had to be warehoused and, and it had to be retailed and wholesaled. And there was so much of it that it filled up all the buildings in the old centers of cities. People had to move out to make room for all the stuff. And meanwhile, they needed lots of clerks and accountants to keep track of it. So they had to invent the office building. Um, when they built railroads, just think of all the amount of accounting and timekeeping it took to run a railroad. So you have a need for storing stuff and you have a need for storing workers. Um, and it, you know, it, it just takes up, and, and it all happens in prime locations, the locations that are where people are used to doing business. Lower Manhattan's the best example of it. And that's why the rest of us Americans use a New York word to describe a central business district. We call it downtown. I was going to say that just like row houses aren't called row houses all over the world, downtowns aren't called downtowns all over the world, right? True. The, the British would just call it a city center. Or in London, they'd say the city of London. 
um, but we all Americans say downtown, which is a New York invention. You, you know, Bronx is up, the battery's down, you had downtown and you had uptown. And in the middle, you had midtown. Still do. What's funny about that is that in some places, downtowns aren't actually down, but yet they're still called downtowns, right? Right. And New York, I, I'm convinced, would be a much happier place if the Dutch had put their fort at about 42nd Street. Um, as it was, they put their fort way down at the tip of the island where there wasn't much land. And as the city began to grow, everybody needed to be within walking distance of work. And work was down in lower Manhattan. And there wasn't much land. So New York rapidly became the most crowded city in the North Atlantic world. Uh, by the middle of the 1900s, or the 1800s, New York was as crowded as Calcutta and was really different from London, really different from Amsterdam, really different from Philadelphia or Boston or Washington or Baltimore. And it, it still is. You see that in the, the legacy of New York as a city primarily of apartments, co-ops, and condos, whereas London is primarily a city of houses, Amsterdam primarily a city of houses. So we have that population boom to thank, and I'm not sure some people might not use the word thank for this, but to thank for turning a city of row houses into a city of skyscrapers? You have a population boom and a land shortage. They had to work together. Um, your population did not boom as fast as London's. Um, and London was still bigger than New York in 1900. But London just has one skinny little river. You had two big wide rivers. And uh, it cost a lot of money to cross those rivers. And you really didn't cross them until the 20th century at a price that most people could afford. Um, there were ferries to Brooklyn by 1814, but they cost five cents and most people couldn't pay five cents. And there were horse-drawn streetcars by 1832, but they cost five cents and most people couldn't pay five cents. So um, working class people in Manhattan got amazingly crowded. Uh, Middle-class people did fine. They could pay five cents and they got Brooklyn Heights and they got the Upper West Side and the Upper East Side, Murray Hill. But, um, but working class people in New York, it was, it was really, really, really horrible for about 100 years. You spent a lot of time in the book talking about the development of London specifically and also about a great fire that greatly impacted that development. Uh, the center of London burnt down in 1666. Uh, the center of London at that point was still a medieval city of ramshackle wooden houses. They all burnt down. By 1666, the nobility and gentry of England had discovered the row, red brick row house the way the Dutch had invented it. And Parliament passed a law that said that London would have to be rebuilt as a city of brick row houses. And so builders came to London from all over England to rebuild this destroyed capital city. The work took seven years. When the work was over, they were all unemployed and they all went somewhere else. Many of them went back to where they came from. Some of them crossed the ocean, uh, but wherever they went, they took the new London way of building. And because London was the capital and was the center of fashion, wherever they went, they found people who wanted the new London way of building. You talk in the book about how the introduction of gas lighting, cast iron, and steam impacted the development of row house cities. Can you talk to us about that? Gas lighting 
steam, iron construction made downtowns possible. They made it possible to build big buildings that could hold a lot of people or hold a lot of stuff. And they made it possible for the North Atlantic cities, which had more trade than any cities in the world, to accommodate all the trade that they had, had all the stuff, all the people. Uh, when you could build with iron, you could go tall. When you had gas lights, you didn't have to have a window in every room. Um, and steam, eventually by, by 1850, people had figured out how to make relatively small steam engines that could run elevators in relatively small buildings. Uh, the Howitt Building down, uh, down Broadway, 1857, I think, best iron front in the city, had the first residential elevator in the world. Um, little steam engine could do that. And eventually you got the Woolworth Building, the Empire State Building, God knows what else. Who are among the key developers and architects who helped to create row house cities? The pioneer row house architects are in Holland. And they have names that are typically not known in the English speaking world and are often hard to pronounce or to spell. Um, but uh, if I have to pick one of them, there's a guy named Jakob van Kampen. He builds the first row houses ever, two of them. 1622 in Amsterdam. And he then goes on to build the Mauritz House, which is not a row house, but it's a small palace in The Hague and is the first really classical building in, in Northern Europe. Um, and um, then he goes on to build Amsterdam City Hall. So he's a top flight architect. He's one of the great architects in the history of the world. And he doesn't, and he designs, you know, big expensive buildings, but he doesn't just design big expensive buildings. He also designs houses for the people and helps the people to come up with a way of building um, that will work even without genius architects. The guy who does the same thing in London is named Inigo Jones. And he designs some good buildings, but above all, he writes a good building code. And then fast forward to about 1800, there's a guy in Boston named Charles Bullfinch and Charles Bullfinch wants Boston to catch up with modern architecture. Um, and he is a good architect and he becomes the mayor of the city for 18 years and he makes everybody build the way he wants to build. And so if you go to Beacon Hill in Boston now, you will see Bullfinch's world. And Boston, had, Boston was still a wooden town in 1790, but by 1820, it was a city of stylish brick row houses. How would you compare row houses in Boston to New York to Philadelphia? How different are they here in our area, the Northeast? They're not very different. If you walk down a street, a row house street in any one of the cities, they all look exactly the same. The, to the extent that there are differences, they're mainly differences in the back. New York lots are only 100 feet deep. So New York houses tend to be only two rooms deep and there's no back wing. Philadelphia lots tend to be 200 feet deep, so they have long back wings. They're different in the back. Then New York has one thing that is unique. There's no other city in the world that does what New York does. Very, very high basements and very, very long high front steps or stoops, as the Dutch and the New Yorkers call them. I would love somebody to tell me why New York has those high basements and those long high stoops. Big beautiful book on New York row houses called Bricks and Brownstone doesn't tell you that. 
I want to know. <laughs> it's a burning question, huh? Burning question. Because it's, it's really, things like that really shape the way people live. Particularly, you know, I spent a, a couple of times over the weekend helping a friend of mine get in and out of his car because he'd broken his ankle. Think about that when you look at those big, tall stoops going up to the front door of a New York brownstone. Think about what it's like to be 85 years old. Yeah, not easy. So row houses, of course, are connected. What about the common wall? Are they built in such a way that you aren't going to hear your neighbors? Was that thought about in the construction? Uh, Sometimes it's thought about and sometimes it's not. Uh, You know, sometimes the walls are thick and well-made. Sometimes they're thin and poorly made. Um, when Walt Whitman was living in a row house in Brooklyn, no, sorry, it was either, no, it was Mark Twain. Mark Twain lived in a row house in Brooklyn for a while. And he said he could hear his neighbor change his mind. Uh, (laughs) So uh, they're not all well built. Um, You know, I live in a row house and I never hear voices from the houses on either side. I do every now and then hear a thump. I do notice that my neighbors all know what pieces I'm playing on the piano. Have you traveled to all of the North Atlantic cities? I have. All the ones that I've written about. I'm told that Melbourne, Australia counts as a North Atlantic city, but I haven't traveled to Melbourne, Australia, so I don't write about it. Yep, but I have. And I've walked around them, and they are great fun. Um, I wanted to put into the acknowledgments that I was grateful to all the people who did not call the cops on me when they saw me mucking about their property, but the publisher thought that was a little over the top. So, uh, But I'm very grateful to those people nonetheless. What are among, for you, the most notable examples in this book that if you are traveling, you should make a point to go and check out? Every city has something great. Um, some cities are great in their totality. Uh, I think the, the first sentence that I wrote had some, you know, deeply intelligent thing to say, like, Dutch cities are the pleasantest cities in the world. <laughs> and I think that they are. If you, you know, if, 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 if you've got a week and you want to experience North Atlantic cities and you're not afraid to cross the ocean and the COVID restrictions are over, go to the Netherlands, pick a city, it doesn't matter very much which one, uh, get a room toward the center of town and just walk. Just walk. They are the pleasantest cities of the world. If you've got a boat, that's even better. They all have canals. If you want to have fun on dry land, it's hard to beat the British city of Bath. The British pronounce it Bath, but if you say Bath, they know what you're talking about. They just know you're a yank. Um, And uh, Bath is the greatest classical row house city. Uh, There's a sort of an American Bath with classical architecture and a romantic landscape, and it's Savannah, Georgia. Savannah, Georgia is an amazing place. So every one of these, every every one of these cities has something great. Uh, And sometimes it's row houses, and sometimes it's some other aspect of the North Atlantic tradition. Uh, It's kind of hard to beat Midtown Manhattan. Doesn't have a lot of row houses, but oh, you kid. Or, you know, the city center of Manchester in England, uh, or of Liverpool. The city center of Liverpool is a UNESCO World Heritage Site of Victorian business, business buildings. These are fabulous things. Uh, the North Atlantic cities invented the public park. 
Central Park, Prospect Park, you don't have to go far to go look at them. These are great achievements of the North Atlantic cities. Um, so, and then if you're looking at neighborhoods, every city's got one, you can, everybody's got their favorite. My favorite Baltimore neighborhood, not surprisingly, is the one I live in. So if you're in Baltimore in the neighborhood called Bolton Hill, uh, look for a guy walking a brown and white dog, it might be me, and uh, say hi. You're very involved with helping to shore up architecture in your area, correct? Yes. Talk to us about that effort. Until quite recently, on both sides of the ocean, but particularly in America, most people disliked old buildings, and they really disliked row houses. All of our cities went into what scholars call the urban crisis in the 1960s, the 1970s. New York City came one day away from bankruptcy in 1975. Um, all these cities lost population. They lost most of their middle-class tax base. They lost, you know, they were, they were left poor and underpopulated. Um, and most people thought that cities were obsolete and we weren't going to need them anymore. One of the big problems that all of our cities had was, was that they were full of old buildings and people hated old buildings. And they were full of row houses and people hated row houses. So if you're going to try to bring a city back from the urban crisis, job one is to make people like what the cities are made of. If they're not going to like what the cities are made of, you're not going to get them back. And so historic preservation was kind of the marketing wing of old cities uh, to make people like what the cities already had. And I've done my best to be a part of that. In the book, you also talk about the impact of the world wars on the North Atlantic cities. Obviously, in England, many of them were destroyed. Yeah. Uh, the world wars hit... The First World War didn't hit the North Atlantic cities directly certainly hit the British population and to some extent ours, but not very hard. World War II was really different. Uh, you know, London, Liverpool, even Belfast were very badly bombed. Uh, the center of Rotterdam in Holland was completely destroyed, completely the whole square mile center of the city, completely destroyed on one night in 1940. So that, that was big and a lot of post-war rebuilding had to happen. And then the way the post-war rebuilding happened was in general very harmful on both sides of, of the Atlantic. Um, in England and Holland, um, an enormous amount of high-rise stuff was built, mainly for the poor and for working-class people. So you wound up with big income ghettos around the centers of cities uh, with buildings that were very dense where people couldn't watch their kids while they were cooking lunch. Um, people didn't like them after a while. And in England, they were very poorly built and most of them got destroyed. Um, in this country, you got a little bit of that public housing, though not much. What we did instead was to buy cars and build sprawling suburbia. And that, that didn't directly destroy our cities but it destroyed our urban populations by just vacuuming the middle classes out of cities into the suburbs and leaving cities underpopulated and far, far, far too poor. Um, and in addition, every now and then nice people like Robert Moses 
would destroy whole parts of cities by running highways through them. So uh, on, the, on the British side and the Dutch side, the big problem was high-rise construction. And on the American side, it was cars and suburban sprawl. And in both cases, the result was that you had a concentration of poor people in the centers of cities and the middle classes around the outside. And in America, we had huge amounts of structural racism in the housing market that made it all a heck of a lot worse than it would have had to be, but it would have been bad either way. What are the main things you want people to take away from the North Atlantic cities, this book? I want people to, first of all, to realize that the North Atlantic cities are a kind of city. They're really different from the apartment house cities like Paris or Berlin. And they're really different from the suburban cities like Houston or Minneapolis. Second, I want people to realize that they can learn from things that have worked and have not worked in cities of the same type in foreign countries. Uh, that they're not alone and they're not, you know, if you just read American stuff, there's not much about row house cities because America doesn't have many row house cities. But the world has a number of them and they've all dealt with what we've dealt with. The third thing I want people to realize is that row house cities work for fighting climate change. The North Atlantic cities offer examples of things that actually work for doing that. The book is The North Atlantic Cities, Charlie Duff. Thank you so much for your time. Thank you, George. Great pleasure. And that's all the time we have for this edition of Cityscape. I'm George Boldarki. My thanks to producer Maddie Bristow. Our music is courtesy of bensound.com. Thanks so much for listening.